Same thing's going to happen here. There's a miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. There's a long discourse that follows, starting in verse 22, that he's trying to explain what he's doing, which then leads to the idea that they want to kill him. Take a look here at John 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So you can see the pattern here from John 5 and the pattern in from John 6 that are both the same, leading to the goal of them wanting to see Jesus put to death. Now, we have to get a little bit of background to this. Feeding of the 5,000 is one of those classic Sunday school stories. And I don't say that insulting in any way whatsoever. Maybe you can think back to seeing the flannel board with the feeding of the 5,000. I've seen that flannel board many, many times. There's Jesus, and there's the pretty hills, and there's the people. Then all of a sudden, the flannel boy sticker goes up, and all of a sudden, there's bread and fishes. We need to move a little past the flannel board here to see the depth of what's going on. And once again, I don't say that in any way negative. Because most of the time when we think of the feeding of the 5,000, we take a very simplistic approach, which is good. That is the concept of Jesus can take whatever we have, no matter how meager the resources, and use it for something amazing, mighty, and miraculous. And that is true. But I want us to see a little bit more of what's going on. So to understand this, we have to get a little bit of the background. First things first, let's just read through it. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed, and those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew that what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and we had given thanks. He distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, Truly, this is truly the prophet who has come to the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountains by himself alone. Let's first get the time frame, verse 1. After these things, that's kind of a very generic time frame there. Please remember, as you read through what we call the history books in the Bible, as we read through the Gospels, these are not supposed to be a dear diary, day-by-day account of the life of Jesus. Sometimes in a simple little statement like that, after these things, it could be months, it could be a year, How much time passes in those few little words after these things? Well, this is what we know. John 5, verse 1, there's a Passover. We know that. We know in John 7, verse 2, there's the Feast of Tabernacles. So therefore, Passover is in the spring. Feast of Tabernacles is in the fall. That means there's been at least six months that's going to happen here in this time frame. And if possible, the one that happened back in John 5, that we don't know exactly which one it is, it just says there was a feast, it could be up to a year. So when you look at after these things in John 6 verse 1, you're talking six months to a year of time passing right there. We also know that he's going quite the distance. Because at the end of John 5, he's in Jerusalem. At the beginning of John 6, he's at the Sea of Galilee. That's 70 miles north of Jerusalem. So that means if John 5 ended and he immediately left, he'd have to travel 70 miles, it would take multiple days. But there's nothing in the context to think that happened. So we're somewhere between six months to a year of time passing that's going on. 
What is the purpose again? The purpose is to get us to verse 48. I am the bread of life. When Jesus does something, he does it for a teaching point. So the teaching point here is that he is the bread of life. Let's talk about this bread for a second. What are you thinking about? It's not Nichols bread. It's not bunny bread. It's about a half inch thick, probably about the size of a dinner plate, and it's made out of barley, which is known as the poor man's bread. So about half inch thick, about the size of a plate. It's almost like a glorified cracker, if you will. Made out of barley. What are the fish? You ever try to think that through a little bit? I mean, is Jesus recreating raw fish here? I don't know. Probably what we would call pickled, preserved type of fish. It's interesting that the word for fish here in John's gospel is coordinating with very small fish, almost what we would call appetizer's fish. So we have the lowest quality bread with potentially very, very small fish. How many people? 5,000 men. But it says with women and children as well. Women is plural, children is plural. So that means there's at least two. So that means there's at least 5,004 people there. Now, 5,000 men, you can go back culturally and say, did the women go with the men? We don't know. Let's just say that every guy brought a gal. So right there's 10,000 people. Let's say they're the typical family like Dawn and I, and they all have seven children. Possibly tens of thousands of people. Possibly. We don't know for sure. I would say you could at least make a good estimate of at least 10,000 people and easily go beyond that. The geographical area that they're in right now, this is almost a deserted area. When you check out the map of this, they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee where there's not a lot of towns. One side of the Sea of Galilee had a lot of towns. The other side didn't. They're the side that didn't. In fact, if you understand the geography of Israel, they're in the Golden Heights area. That's where they're actually at right now. The people have no desire, really, for eternal. Verse 2. They're following him because he performed on those who were diseased. They saw the signs. They wanted healed bodies and they wanted full bellies. They weren't looking for something deeper. It is the Passover time, verse 4. So therefore, it could have been a lot of people. Passover is one of the three required feasts that any able-bodied Jewish man above the age of 20 was supposed to make an attempt to go to Jerusalem on. So this could have been people coming for the Passover. It says it was near. We don't know how near. So it could be tens of thousands of people. National spirit is high. You know, Passover is a celebrating holiday of the freedoms we had, of where God brought us out of Egypt. That's why in verse 15, they probably want to make him king. I mean, this guy's amazing. He's healing people. He's feeding people. It's getting close to Passover. Is this going to be our Moses that's going to lead us out of enslavement to Rome? There's a lot going on at this moment that we have to set the scene. And once again, please don't think I'm insulting the concept of a Sunday school message. I don't mean it that way. But there's a lot going on more than just give God your meager resources and watch Him expand it. We have to set the tone of the verses that we're reading. What makes this miracle unique that it's mentioned in all four Gospels? Well, a couple unique things about it. First off, the amount of people. Tens of thousands of people are participating in this miracle. They may not realize they're participating in this miracle. If you're at the back of the crowd, you're just happy you got some fish. You're just happy you got some bread. And I don't want to add to the scriptures, but don't you think the bread probably tasted pretty good? 
Somehow I don't think Jesus made bad bread. At the changing of the water to the wine, the guy said it was the best wine he ever tasted. This is probably the best bread anybody's ever had in their life. In fact, we know that they ate it up. Because if you go look at the wording here that they use about it, it's the concept that they ate as much as they had wanted. That they were filled, the Bible says in those words right there. Take a look at verse 11. As much as they wanted, verse 12, they were filled. That word filled is a very interesting word. You can actually use it in the context of livestock. If you've ever watched livestock eat, they go right at it. These people were probably hungry. We know from the other gospel accounts that had been following Jesus for days, they're hungry, they're tired. So the amount of people that are involved, the people participating in it, makes it unique. This is not a healing. It's not a power over miracle. It's not a power over demons. It's not a power over nature. It's not a power over death. This is a creative miracle. And you may think, okay, well, wasn't the water to wine a creative miracle? The water to wine was a a transformation miracle. This is, and I don't know how he did it. He's God. He is making bread and fish. Now, that should not surprise us because the book of Colossians says all things are made through him and for him and in him all things consist. But he is doing this right here. It's just like, get another basket. I I don't know. Does he put his hands on it and it just appears? Does he take the original basket and bless it? And then all of a sudden he can just keep dumping out of it like the widow's oil? I don't know. But it is absolutely amazing to stop and think of this creative miracle that's going on. There is a lot to this story that it's just so fun, no pun intended, to chew on. Just to say, look at all the details that are here. A deserted area. Lots of people following him for days. The, the access of the miracle. The miracle is leading to a teaching point. There's so much going on here that I find absolutely fascinating about this. But even though we are in the book of John, and that's what our study is, we're actually going to go to Mark's account of this. So can you go with me to Mark 6? kind of interesting because Mark is known as a very fast-paced book. Like, if you go back and read at the beginning of the book of Mark, it just starts. Here's Jesus. One verse, he's tempted. One verse, he's baptized. And it's just fast-paced. Most people believe that when they study out the Bible and how it came to us, that Mark was probably the first gospel written. And what has happened is, we know from Luke's account of the gospel, if you go read the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke went around and interviewed everybody. And got eyewitness accounts. And so Luke was able to take some of these details and fill in more of what's going on. Mark is kind of like this quick, fast-paced, almost cliff note version of the life of Jesus. And then the other Gospels columns come in and add detail that, that isn't in the Gospel of Mark. But what makes Mark interesting is the way he explains the feeding of the 5,000 is almost more detailed than other Gospel accounts. Most people believe that also Mark was written with the great insight of Peter helping Mark write this. And if that's the case, Mark would have talked to Peter and Peter would have said, yeah, this is the detail of it. So just a little bit of background there, some stuff that's going on. So how are we at this point? Let's rewind a little farther. Mark 6, verse 7. Jesus sends the 12 out on a little mini missions trip. So they went out and did their little mini missions trip. Almost like, get your feet wet, guys. Go into towns, prepare the idea of the Messiah coming. 
they come back from their little mini missions trip, and it's kind of a tough time. They found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And John the Baptist was beloved. So the twelve were out doing their thing. John the Baptist is beheaded. And then they all kind of come back together now. And Jesus' idea is we need to rest. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. See, this is why it's important to know what side of the Sea of Galilee they're on. They're on the deserted side. They're going to go get away for a little bit. And let's just kind of recoup here. Let's regroup a little bit. Let's wind down from this. And let's just talk about everything you just went through. And let's talk about John the Baptist. That was the plan. So the first point I want you to see there in verse 31 is the importance of rest. For some reason, in our Puritan work ethic, we pride ourselves on working 12 hours a day, 7 days a week. Boy, no. You need the physical, mental, spiritual rest. Ministry can make you neglect the physical needs that you have. And we need that. Be very, very careful that you do not equate busyness and activity with depth in Christ. The classic bubbling brook example. The bubbling brook sounds so loud, if you will, but the amount of water pales in comparison to a mighty river. Be careful with that person that is constantly masking their lack of depth in Jesus Christ with a lot of activity. Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest. Verse 31. Come rest. Next thing you see as you're resting. 32. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And if memory serves, I think Sea of Galilee is like 13 miles by 6 miles. It's not really big. They're running around it, getting there before Jesus gets there. There's no day off. There's no break. People are people. Every moment, every trip is a missions trip. Just let that sink into your mind. We are never going into Walmart just to grab a gallon of milk. We are going into Walmart to be used by God to whoever we can talk to. We're never just going to go to the park and go for a walk. We're going to be open to whoever the Lord brings into that path to represent Jesus Christ to. We're never just going to go into work, clock in, clock out, and go home. Everything we do is a little mini mission strip. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.2. Be prepared in season and out of season. Preach the word. I just want to encourage you. And and when I ever tell you these stories, I hope they don't come across as, oh, look at what we're doing. I don't mean that. I just want to encourage you. When you leave your house, just, Lord, give us one person to represent you to. No matter what we're doing. Uh, If you're even getting fuel, you're in the back of your mind praying, if there's someone beside me, Lord, let me just represent you to them. We were at a park recently. And there, uh, we had the girls there. We were meeting somebody. And everybody was in pretty good shape. Everything was taken care of. And there was an individual sitting by themselves alone over at a picnic table. And that is just a target for me. So I find a reason to walk by. And I say hello. And if they start keep a conversation, I'm in. And if they don't, I try not to push it. I said hello. 
They made eye contact, said hello. Said, okay. I said, how are you doing today? I don't know what it is about me, but people just tell me exactly what's going on. I said, how are you doing today? Not good. Didn't expect this. Okay, not good. I sit down. Be prepared in season. What's going on? Next thing you know, they're telling me their life story. That they were getting ready to meet a friend there because they had a bad day with what they were going on. Someone made false accusations against them. So now it looks like they may be possibly getting in trouble. And it just kind of goes from there. So I said, okay. I said, sounds like you're going through a difficult time. Let me tell you about the peace of the Lord. Let me tell you about his love. I will pray for you. Got your name and I'll pray for you. And I thought that was it. Then I noticed that they had a mark right here. I said, uh, you know me, I always ask, what's your tattoo about? If you got a tattoo and you're showing it to me, I'm going to ask you what your tattoo is about. So, so what is that? I said, I'm a suicide survivor. I said, suicide survivor? Sit back down. Why would you want to kill yourself? They went ahead and told me. Are you? So I just asked, are you a Christian? I had a lot of reasons why they weren't. Well, at that point, here's the gospel. Here's the track. I'm going to pray for you. Be prepared in season and out of season. We're going to the park, but it's really just a mini missions trip. Just, just keep that in the back of your mind. Wherever you go, people are going to be there. And people are annoying. And people are difficult. And sometimes you don't want to be around people. You want to go to a deserted place. I mean, 32. They departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. That was the goal. But the people ran there. Arrived. And what did Jesus do? Verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw the great multitudes and complained. Doesn't say that. And Jesus saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Pray for compassion for people. Compassion is a very unique word. It is only used to describe Jesus or to describe somebody in a parable that Jesus told. Compassion means literally from the gut. What's the difference between compassion and kindness and generosity? Generosity is I see somebody struggling and I say, I'm going to give them five bucks to get a meal. That's being generous. Kindness is go over and talk to them and say, is there anything else you need other than a meal? How can I help you? Compassion is coming right beside them and saying, I want to see your life changed. What can I do to get involved in your life? Compassion is hard. Generosity in some ways is very easy. Here's five bucks. I hope you get a hot meal and Jesus loves you. Kindness is a little harder. Okay, what do you need? Can I, can I give you a ride someplace? Compassion is much, much deeper. And Jesus is the one that sets the example because most of us, and I, and I won't speak for all of you, but I can speak for me, there's times where I, verse 34, see the multitude and I am not moved with compassion. I am annoyed, I am bothered, I am frustrated, I am fleshly. I have to pray for compassion. And so he sees them and he's moved with them. Now this is where it gets kind of interesting. Keep your hand here in Mark. And I don't really don't have you turn for one verse, but this verse is really important. Go with me to Luke 9. Jesus is going to feed them, but he's not just going to feed them. He's also going to do something more for them. Now, please, please don't hear what I'm not saying and don't get upset at me. I believe it is vitally important to give people who are hungry 
a meal. I think it is vitally important if people need clothes on their back to help supply them with their needs. That's a biblical concept. I believe, though, there's a lot of ministries that fail because they give them a meal, maybe under the name of God, and it stops. Or they help them out with certain life situations under the name of God and Christianity, and then it stops. People with full stomachs still go to hell. People with clothes on their back still go to hell. Jesus could have fed the 5,000 and moved on, but look what he does according to Luke's account. Now, verse 11. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. We need to make sure we are filling their stomachs and also giving them the gospel. We need to make sure that we're putting clothes on their back and also giving them the gospel. I think I've shared this story with you before, but a man that we met when we were down in Mexico and we went and saw a church plant that he was doing down there, he told me his story of when he would come from the States down to Mexico and they would just open up the van and the van was full of flour and rice and every other need and the crowds would come and they'd hand out the flour and they'd hand out the rice and they would say, Jesus loves you and it was all good. I'm not putting it down. It was all good. And then they would leave and go back to the States and he said, we'd pat ourselves on the back. And he said, I kept thinking, there's more. There's more than just feeding them in the name of Jesus. So he actually went and got an apartment, moved down there, and helped start a church. Because he says they need more than just a full belly and clothes on their back. I am all for doing good. Do good in the name of Jesus. But as you do good, present the gospel. Teach them about the kingdom of God. Because it can be very easy. Because it feels good to do good. I mean, it really does. To watch somebody who's hungry get a meal, man. To watch somebody who has a need, have that need met, that, that really does feel good. And the problem is sometimes in ministry, we can chase the feeling of good. Under the umbrella of Jesus, we're really realizing, wait a second, they need something more than the food. They need something more than the shirt on the back. They need the gospel. And that's what Jesus did there in Luke 9. He taught them the kingdom of God. Back now to Mark's account, Mark 6. It's becoming late. What are we going to do with all these people? 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already hours late. Send them away. Look at the compare contrast between Jesus. Human nature, send them away away it's time we've healed them we've taught them we've done everything we can how often do we sometimes want to do that just send them away and we can make a real good reason why we should send them away verse 35 it's a deserted place the hour is late They, they need to go home now they need to go home Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. See, there's a logical, practical reason, Jesus, why we're doing this. The hour is late. They need food. It's time for them to go home. And this is where Jesus stops and asks the disciples, what should we do about this? And anytime you see Jesus ask a question in the Bible, he's never asking a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a probing question. It says in John's account, if you remember correctly, he, says, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He's doing this now to test the disciples to say, How are you guys going to handle this? Why does he pick out 
Philip. Already know from earlier in the book of John, Philip lived in this area. He was from Bethesda. And so this is his hometown area, if you will. So Philip, how are we going to feed these guys? What's the best restaurant around here? So then it becomes this discourse, and it's kind of recorded here a little bit of, they talk about something now. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? A denarii is one day's wage. So 200 days worth of money, and one of the other gospel accounts it says that's not even enough. That's not even enough to feed these people. See, human nature always has practical reasons and excuses on why we can't. It's too late. I'm too tired. Uh, I already got commitments. There's not enough money. See, man is always looking at money and resources. Jesus does not care about money. He does not care about resources. He cares about our heart. He wanted the disciples. He was testing them, John 6, 5. He wanted them to see something different. 37, he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. So disciples, what are you going to do? Now what's the best answer that the disciples could have given at this point? Well, you know, Jesus, we've seen you cast out demons. We've seen you raise the dead. We've seen you change water into wine. We've seen all these things. So we're sure that you have something that you can do. But that's not what they say. They go around, they do a quick little inventory from the other gospel accounts, and they find out they have five loaves and two fishes. And one of the other gospel accounts says, but what is that amongst so many? I've been in meetings like that in churches where the only thing we want to talk about is what we can't do. And that's all we can focus on, what we can't do. The resources are limited, meager resources. We don't have the manpower, we don't have the finances, we don't have any of this. And so let's just keep repeating and keep talking about what we can't do. Rather than taking what we have and figuring out what we're going to do with it. As it says in John 6, 9, but what are these among so many? Oh, can we, can we change the way we think? Instead of looking at what we can't do, instead of looking at what we don't have, let's take what we do have and say, Lord, it is in your hands and you are Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. You created something out of nothing. By you all things consist. And Lord, you are greater than anything we've ever seen. Moses that provided manna, you are greater than Moses. You are greater than Elisha that fed the 100 in 2 Kings 4. So you are greater than the greatest prophets of Elisha. You are greater than the greatest leaders of Moses. Lord, you are greater than everything. See, this is the depth of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is showing you that he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elisha. He's greater than all these other miracles that happened in the Old Testament. And we find out a little bit here, they use this against Jesus later on in John 6, where they say, Moses gave his people bread in the wilderness, what are you going to do for us? And Jesus says, there's somebody greater than Moses right here. He's trying to show them something deeper. Go back to our beginning, where he says, I am the bread of life. That's the whole focus. I am the bread of life. I am something that's going to fulfill you. So, we know what happens. 39, he makes them sit down in groups on the green grass. They sit down in ranks and hundreds and fifties. Obviously, Jesus was a Methodist. He was very organized on how he did things. 41, when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples as set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. I, I really don't say this in any type of doubt. I am absolutely fascinated by verse 41. He, he takes the bread, he breaks it, and somehow, there's just baskets to fill thousands and thousands of people. There's two fish. 
I mean, well, how is this happening? 42. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments of the fish, one for each doubting apostle. Leftovers, take it home. And when those had eaten the loaves, were about 5,000 men. Back now to John 6, please. The response in verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. If you remember correctly, the prophet was prophesied by Moses. Moses said, somebody greater than me will come, the prophet. 15, now they want to make him king. Why would you not want him to be king? He's going to feed you. He's going to heal you. He's going to take care of you. They, they follow him around now for a while, hinting and thinking, food, food and more food. You have to rethink from a, a poor person's perspective. This is the greatest thing. I mean, we, we take food for granted nowadays. If you are hungry, and this happens every now and then, well, somebody, I'm sure your kids do this when you had kids growing up. They'll come look in the pantry, they'll look in the fridge, look at the cupboards, and then in utter despair with tears coming down their cheeks, we have nothing to eat. That's why we have cats. Go grab one, you know what I mean? We have nothing to eat. Nothing to eat in the house. What are you talking about we have nothing to eat? I just took a second loan out of the house to get groceries last week for you guys. Back during this time, what you wanted to eat, you probably made that day. Didn't have refrigeration to save it. Maybe you had a loaf of bread that was left over for a while, but you really are kind of going for a while here if you were the poor class day to day. So this concept of food, there is no medical facilities like we have today. Concept of healings, where a simple infection could become so out of control. This is the guy. Make him king. That's why they say later on in John 6 verse 30, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then? That we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. Hint, hint. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Hint, hint. Jump ahead to 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They weren't looking for eternity. They were looking for healed bodies and full bellies. And that's why Jesus goes into this great teaching once again of I am the bread of life. And and I just want to encourage you as you're reading through the Bible, and I know it's difficult because time is limited. I get that. But make the time as much as possible to read large sections of Scripture together. To see how it all ties in. Because a lot of times if you're doing maybe a reading plan, it would maybe do John 6, 1 through 14. You're like, oh, feeding of the 5,000. That's really cool. Then the next day is John 15 through 21. Oh, walking on the water. That's really cool. And then they usually give you a Sunday off because they assume you're going to church. So then you come back Monday and you now he's talking about bread. And if you're like me, the mind sometimes doesn't connect to just three days ago. I read about the feeding of the 5,000. It's a connecting theme. Or maybe if you're breaking it down, it takes a few days to read through John 5 and 6. And you realize, wait a second, they're basically the same. Miracle, discourse, reject Jesus, want to kill him. John 6, miracle, discourse, reject Jesus, want to kill him. All around a feast day. Passover, tabernacle, etc. You can see the connections there when we bring it all together. 
So the feeding of the 5,000 is much deeper than just providing food. And, I, and once again, I'm not trying to put that down. It's much deeper than just being the young boy that gives up your meager resources and saying, God bless it. Because those are all true statements. But there's so many layers to this. So many layers. And I think another le- neat part, which we can't get into tonight because time limits us, is verse 15. Jesus leaves. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone because they were going to make him king. And one of the other gospel accounts, he tells his disciples, get in the boat and leave. Do you realize the power trip that would have been there for those 12 disciples? Tens of thousands of people thinking you're the greatest in the world as you're handing out food and bringing them to Jesus to be healed? Jesus is like, yeah, you 12 need to get out of here. This is going to go to your head. Which I really wish time would allow because he sticks them in a boat, puts them in the middle of the sea and lets a storm hit them. He allows it to happen. If you're not going to be with us next week, in Mark's account, he sits up on the mountain and watches them in the storm. That kind of blows your mind a little bit on theology sometimes. God, you put me in the storm and you're allowing me to be in the storm and you're watching me in the storm? And then even add an element to it in Mark's account, Jesus is walking on the water and the Bible says he would have walked right past him. Because he wanted them to learn to cry out to him for help. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and that's going to be next week, so pretend you didn't hear any of that. So there is just so much in here, and I just absolutely love, absolutely love this. But we're going to pause real quick, because I've been talking this whole time. Anybody got any quick uh, questions, comments about anything here of the Feeding of the 5,000 before we go on? Kathy. touched all their food yeah um i was reminded this week i'm supposed to repeat what everybody says so uh kathy was just saying there about in her translation and i'm assuming it's nlt nlt is using the idea there that he kept giving it to him and that because the verb tense there is the idea that it was a continuous action that kept on happening again and again and again and that is the way that it actually literally translates over from the greek because once again think about this for anybody that's ever served a meal to a hundred people how many times are you dishing out mashed potatoes there's a lot going on here. A lot going on there. So like, like Kathy was saying, Jesus would have been involved in every aspect of this, of touching it, because he's the one blessing it as it's being produced there. John. Yeah, how, how willing we are to lift up Jesus and give it to him. I mean, I, and I can't remember in which gospel account it is. Um... Verse 11, maybe, where it says in verse 11 of chapter 6, and Jesus took the loaves, that he has to take it. You you have to give it to him. And actually, if you look at verse 11, just break down verse 11 with me. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and with the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. What a picture almost of, of discipleship. Jesus gives something to us, and we take that and we go give it to others. I mean, that's what I've noticed. Like, when I'm doing devotions in the morning, and if I read a devotional, and I'm like, yeah, I got absolutely nothing out of this. This has nothing to do with me in any way whatsoever. Later on that day, I run into somebody, and I say, guess what I read this morning? Because the devotional wasn't for me. The devotional was given to me to be an instrument to use for somebody else. So, when I read a devotional about a 
young mom struggling with little children. I'm like, yeah, I got nothing out of this. But next thing I know, I run into the young mom that's struggling with little children. I say, hey, let me send you a copy of it. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking the food. He's blessing the food. He gives the food to the disciples. The disciples pass along to somebody else. And that's really just a neat picture of discipleship, if you will. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Bethany. Yeah. That's a good point, too. Bethany was saying about how then they gave it to everybody else and they got the leftovers afterwards. But don't you think they snuck a bite? I really do mean that. I think they, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't have. Okay. I think they maybe would have. Um, I think it's important to note, too, with this, and I'm not trying to pick on anything when we see this, some people like to take this because that phrase in verse 11, giving thanks in the Greek is the term Eucharist, which that's all Eucharist means is giving thanks. And if any of you grew up maybe in the Catholic tradition, the idea of Eucharist, giving thanks, some people try to look at this and they almost downplay the miracle that this was like a real big communion service. No, because if you look at the wording once again, verse 11, as much as they wanted. I'm not trying to make a joke about communion. But if you would ever take the wafer and go back up and say, can I have more, please? I don't think that's acceptable. I'm really hungry. Can I have a half dozen? It doesn't work that way. And you don't, verse 12, eat it till you're filled. So the wording there is very important. This is not just a bite of food. Like take one bite and pass on. This is the best meal I would dare say that some of these people maybe ever had to the point of fullness. Where you could eat till you were full. What a blessing that is. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right. Hey, I hope you were as blessed by the feeding of the 5,000. And when you see that, once again, it's in every gospel account. I hope you see the depth of it, the layers of it. There's a lot of neat stuff in there. And what an absolute blessing it is. I wish time would permit us for us just to go right into walking on the water and then right into the discourse of the bread of life. But time does not permit us to do that. Hey, let's pray. Lord, good to be here this evening. Thankful for this time. Um, And Lord, let us just take these points and apply them. We give you everything. And let us never focus on what we can't do or what little we have. We focus on you being God that provides. Lord, give us a heart of compassion for people. To truly care for them. To truly love them like you love them. And be willing to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. Let us not just do good to do good. But do good under the name of Jesus for the furtherance of the gospel. For your glory, Lord, in your name. Amen. Real quick, in way of announcements, um, May 16th, baptism, after the 1030 service. So if you're interested in getting baptized, see me, let me know, and we'll get your name written down for that. So coming up, once again, May 16th, baptism. Hopefully here, hard to believe, but we're almost to the month of May, where our goal is to have a fellowship meal in the month of May. We're not going to be doing it on the first Wednesday of the month. We'll get it out there. We'll make sure it's announced beforehand. We're going to kind of keep an eye on the weather here a little bit and wait till a real nice day and hopefully do that. So we'll make sure it's announced, you know, a couple days beforehand. But hopefully getting back into those here in the month of May as well. And what a blessing that is. So looking forward to that fellowship and looking forward to that. VBS is getting finalized. We should hopefully have information for that on Sunday to let you know the final dates, the final times. If you're interested in getting involved in the ministry of VBS, it's one of the biggest outreaches we do all year to the kids. Please see Tony. She's back in the back. She'll point you in the right direction with that as well. Looking forward to that. You guys have a good week. God bless. Go represent Christ in all ways. And we'll see you either online or face-to-face next week. Take care.